0: Play the for you. coming up on verse course verse she was known as the bad girl of rock and roll i see her more as a symbol of everything good and terrible about the music industry that's I next everything to keep you boy oh it breaks my heart when you're not there Welcome to episode 114 of Verse Chorus Verse IMDL. How is everybody doing this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever you're listening? I am doing okay. I have had this brutal sinus infection for a few days now. I actually feel way better, but I don't sound better. So first and foremost, I apologize for what you're hearing right now and the probably snap edits that will happen due to this stupid cough that I have. We very recently had a bit of a snowmageddon in Washington. Snowmageddon's in Washington are when you get about, what, six inches, if that, of snow. But the problem with Washington is that then the roads... Completely freeze over and nobody knows how to drive on ice or snow. So the whole city kind of shuts down I got to do a little traveling in it. That sure was fun. But hey, I'm home. I'm warm. I'm safe I can't complain about anything. I am looking forward to what I'm about to talk about with you all This person this wonderful woman has been on my mind for about two years now ever since the YouTubes became a thought In my head, we are on YouTube. Do you listen to our YouTube? Do you watch our YouTube? You can listen or watch. You don't have to have your eyes open when you watch it. Some people may like that a little more. Point being, one of the things that we do on our YouTube, which is just at verse course first pod on YouTube, or you can just look up verse course first on YouTube. One of the things that we do on there is we talk about the Rolling Stones' top 500 albums of all time. And one of the very first albums that I talked about, and honestly, it was a little bit of a throwaway for me. We'll get into this, but this is something interesting about YouTube, uh, was the only real release of the nets. I think it might have been number 500 or 49. It was very, very... No, 500 was Arcade Fire's funeral because I remember right off the jump, I was thinking, well, this is ridiculous that this is number 500. If you're going to have Funeral by Arcade Fire, it's going to have to be higher than that. But one of the first ones I did was the Fabulous Ronettes featuring Veronica, which is basically like saying the Fabulous Ronettes featuring one of the people that are actually in the Ronettes because Veronica is who we're talking about. So I did that episode. It was a compilation album. We'll get into that. A bunch of recordings. They just called it records back then. A bunch of records from the Ronettes. It was produced by a person that I am not a fan of, uh, even though he was an amazing producer. So it was kind of a throwaway album for me. Okay, I thought it was kind of a throwaway album for me. Little did I know that I would keep thinking about it. It got unintentionally brought up more last year because the person that I want to talk about passed away. It was a big one. I kept seeing things on it, and I kept seeing books on it, and it just... It was one of those things where I was very gravitating towards Ronnie Spector's story. And I am very, very excited to talk about her tonight. Uh, Before I do that, let's do the most important part of the night. Tonight, I am still not feeling that well. I haven't talked about it on the podcast yet. I think I talked about it on one YouTube. But tonight, I am very boring. I have water. I have Gatorade. I went and bought all the different flavors of Gatorade, trying to figure out which one is my favorite. I'm just a boring old, I think the old fashioned lemon lime or whatever. I just don't think it can be beaten. The frosts are good, like the blue's pretty good and the, the white one or whatever that, it, whatever that weird opaque color is that's kind of eerie, but you just can't get any better than the good old lemon lime. So I've got that. And then I also have tea. I've been drinking some tea. The last couple of days, drinking a lot of tea the last couple of days. I am not a tea drinker at all, but we do what we do to get better, don't we? This is not just because I'm sick. I am in the middle of a 30 day dry period as far as drinking alcohol. So, this is something. I guess we can touch on. Maybe I'll touch on it a little bit. I'm recording an episode uh, in a day or two with Rachel as well. And we talk about drinking a lot on this podcast because drinking is fun. The whole point of starting this podcast is that there's nothing more fun to do than sit down, have some drinks, and talk about music with your friends. I will never not do that. But with the amount that we talk about alcohol and how much we all love to drink, the jokes about being alcoholics and this and that, it might be good once every couple years to represent the other side of it, to let you all know that I, for example, well, let's start with the rest of the group. Rachel is not a drinker. She has like a margarita when she goes to dinner and she drinks on the pod. But she is very, very, very much a social drinker, if you'd even call her that. Evil is an incredibly responsible drinker as well. You can tell that he's the type of person that wants to be in control of his life and actions. And I've seen him, for the amount that we drink on this podcast, I think I've seen him drunk drunk maybe twice. And I don't know. I don't know if any of them, you know, I don't Rachel wouldn't need to do a I need to stop drinking for a while kind of thing because of how little I think she drinks. Evil is a health nut in general. So evil's always gonna make sure that his body and his mind are sound, and I know and if alcohol is skewing that in any way, he would put a stop to it immediately. He's he's in tune with himself. I do not consider myself any sort of alcoholic. I would guess that maybe there are people out there that do. But my definition of alcoholism is somebody that has to have alcohol, somebody that either needs it to function or the functions in your life uh, can be dictated by drinking. And so every now and then I take a month off, reset my mind, reset my body, make sure that I can get as healthy as can be. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's why I'm sick right now, because I'm going through withdrawals. That's not why. I'm very much kidding. But... Um, They're also, you know, I am just like every other person on earth in this world. Civilized organizational communities, we all have histories of alcoholism. I mean, think about it. What are you, German? Oh, man, those Germans, they fucking drink, man. What are you, Irish? Oh, my God. Irish? Oh, you Scottish? Oh, Jesus. Oh, you drink. You're European? Oh, no. Oh, you, you're Mexican? Oh, man. Like, d- you could do that all day. All day with every single country. My point is, is that I'm not, I feel bad when I say that I come from a family where there's, where alcoholism is prevalent because I'm not, I don't want to feel like I'm saying anything mean about my family. I'm very proud of my family. But, and uh, I'm more saying that every fucking family in America particularly has alcoholism embedded in it. And the 30 days off is a good reminder. It's a good check-in with yourself. Make sure it's not getting the upper hand. Do you find that on a Friday night that you're like, fuck, man, I want to drink so bad. Well, maybe I've got a problem. It's a good way for me to check in with myself. It always goes the same way. I never, I don't feel like drinking. The only time I have a bit of a hard problem with it, if it's a special, you know, like I was in Vegas, for example, my last night of Vegas, every single time I'm in Vegas, I go to Mama Fuku, which is David Chang's restaurant in the Cosmo hotel. And I get pork buns, ramen, and a Japanese lager. It's my favorite meal of all time. Uh, spicy miso ramen, pork belly buns, Japanese lager. It doesn't get any better than that. It never will. And so something like that, it's, I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the restaurant and myself by not drinking that beer with it so in that way there are some bad you know if i have a if i'm going through my 30 days and i go to a restaurant where there's a really good steak i'm like well how the fuck do you not have red wine with that other than that i'm never it's not a man shit i really wish i could have a drink and i think as long as you're like that you're good anyway there's my spiel I feel much better. I guess we can go on to things that are important. I never know. I never know if I'm supposed to talk about stuff like that. I get a lot of feedback that that's the stuff that people enjoy, the humanism, the ways to relate. But I'm sure there are some of you out there that are like, yeah, that's fucking great. I don't care. Can we get to the music? I don't give a shit if you're a drunk or not. Uh, Which, hey, more power to you. Ronnie Spector. So yeah, Phil Spector has come up a lot in the YouTubes and the podcast He's going to. It's a musical podcast. He's one of the most influential producers of all time. He's going to get brought up. But I think what got lost in the shuffle a lot is honestly how terrible of a person he was, why he was such a terrible person, and who he was such a terrible person to. Because Ronnie Spector was very famous back in her day. But if you ask most music nerds nowadays, I feel like they're going to have a lot more to say about Phil than they are about Ronnie, which I very much understand. And I will get into why I think that is later. I don't want to make this about Phil. I promise it's going to be much, much more about Ronnie. And it's not even so much about Phil as much as it is the industry and us as a society when she was big. I want to talk about all that. I'm very excited. I have my drinks here. I guess we can get into it. Only thing I do, I'll do, i do before I take a break is just thank everybody again. Our Fiona Apple episode came out last week. Extremely positive feedback on that one. Got a lot of new people writing in on that. I don't think I realized how... I knew Fiona Apple has a following. I didn't realize... I don't know why I didn't realize it because just like Rachel and I you can't just be a casual fan of Fiona. You you get drawn in, you get sucked in, and you become a little bit obsessed with how good her music is. So we got a lot of positive feedback on that one. Thank you so much for that, that's awesome. It made me really happy. With those artists that you really care about, when you're doing a Fiona Apple or you're doing a Ronnie Spector or you're doing a Lauren Hill, the Alice, like we did Dirt, there are a lot of nerves that come with, you know, getting done with the episode and having somebody write in and saying, you're an idiot. This is actually why this is and what this is. And you probably shouldn't have a podcast because we do get those occasionally, not often, but occasionally. So it feels really, really good to get that feedback. Other than that, hopefully you're keeping up with the YouTubes. Sven just, Sven does such a good job. I know we keep banging that bell, but it's deserved because we are very, very spoiled in the video editing department. Uh, Sven does a crazy good job editing our YouTubes and we're, we're very proud of them. Let's talk about Ronnie Spector. After I take a break, we'll be right back. veronica yvette bennett aka ronnie specter or just call her ronnie it's unfortunate that her name was associated so much with the specter name that she ended up as ronnie specter but she didn't mind it so much she was born in new york in 1943 new york new york she grew up in spanish harlem which is you can tell right away when you hear her talk and You see when you look at the Ronettes and you see who they were, even their skin color, you can almost know right away where they came from because you didn't have that sort of thing back then. There was one place that sort of skin color was going to come from and that was going to be New York City. That was the melting pot. We can get into that a little more later before I'll tell you what I studied for this. So the first thing I did, besides just listen to a bunch of music, I watched a couple little things. Not on there's not that much on Ronnie, but there's a lot of stuff about the era that this came from, the doo-wop era. And there's um, there is a lot of stuff you can watch or read on Phil. And then the other thing I did was I read her book called "Be My Baby." Fantastic book, beautiful book, frustrating book, lovely. Here is the first thing and probably the fifth thing and the eighth thing and the 12th thing and the 32nd thing and the last thing that I will say about Ronnie Spector. If you study Ronnie Spector for more than five minutes, you will fall in love undeniably. She is one of the most amazing, happy, beautiful, glorious people that you will study. Interviews when she was 75, 71 before she passed. She passed away when she was 78. She passed away last year, which is one of the reasons why she was so prevalent in last year's podcast, why she kept coming up. She did pass away last year, but all the way up to that, she was one of those people that was so excited to tell her story, so excited to talk. I honestly think that we fairly easily could have gotten her on this pod to talk. She was so eager about sharing her story and sharing everything. And there's more on that too with her points of view on people like Beyonce and Taylor Swift. And she was just a very beautiful, amazing person that a very gross industry tore down as much as they could and succeeded. They honestly succeeded in a lot of ways. But in a lot of ways, they didn't. Her spirit endured until she passed away. We're still talking about her. I'm some white boy from the Northwest talking about how Ronnie Spector is the coolest motherfucker that ever lived. So here we are. I'm not alone in that. Lots of people thought she was the best ever. We're talking John Lennon. John Lennon had a massive crush on her. The Rolling Stones. David Bowie was in love with her. Fucking, we can talk about Eddie Money having her on uh, Take Me Home Tonight. She endured. She was loved by everyone. So yeah, grew up in Spanish Harlem, Washington Heights. She was fiercely, fiercely proud of that until the day she died. She would talk about it all the time, which, why wouldn't you? She was born from an Irish father and a mother that was half black, half Cherokee. So that's where, like we were saying, New York City, this very unique cultural presence and skin color that just made her and her cousins, who were the other Ronettes, completely stick out in an amazing way. It also stopped them from getting gigs every now and then. Uh, they were supposed to be in a movie, and I'm sorry, I don't remember what the movie was, because this was when they were really just killing it with anything they did, but they couldn't get the movie because the director didn't like that they didn't know what ethnicity the Ronettes were. It wasn't that they were white. It wasn't they were that they were black. It's that the director said, we have to know. You can't have a woman in a movie that you don't know if she's white or black. This is how it was back then. People were fucking idiots. And people continue to be fucking idiots. The fact that they were from Spanish Harlem is really what made them what they were. Uh, Ronnie Spector is this very loud, proud, boisterous one of the things that she said about her life that I loved is I got up on my coffee table to perform at five years old and I've never come down that's who Ronnie Spector was Ronnie Spector didn't want to be the most popular girl in her school she wanted to be the most popular girl in the world she needed the fame monster she wanted to perform and be loved so badly in an innocent way She was very much a, she knew what the crowd liked. You know, one of the things that really got the Ronettes to stand out was their fashion sense, which did come from Spanish Harlem. Uh, Ronnie Spector wanted them to dress a lot like the people that grew up there, including the prostitutes and things like that. And so, you know, when girl groups like the Supremes were out there singing their love songs and in their beautiful gowns and stuff, here are the Ronettes here's our short skirts or our Chinese style dresses that were hiking up more and more as the show goes on. And people went fucking nuts. People completely fell in love. She knew that sex sold and that she she knew what to do. And it was still back in the day, it was still this fairly innocent thing. They just knew right away what they were gonna be. One of the first gigs they ever got was at the Apollo. They were just little, little kids. This is her and her, uh, Estelle Bennett and Nedra, who are the other two. They were originally the Darling Sisters, and then they became the Ronettes. They played the Apollo, basically said, you know, she doesn't think they did that good, but they were so young that they got like the polite applause. They didn't get booed off stage or anything, and, and that was really what did it for her. But really, you know, by the time she was 20 or I'll say I'll say 19 by the time she was 19, they were consistently gigging in Manhattan. They had consistent gigs at the biggest places in New York City. They were killing it. A lot of this came from traditional Spanish Harlem family, huge family with uncles and cousins and aunts and everybody's singing and performing and doing all these beautiful things. And I think that pushed Ronnie because Ronnie wanted to be more than all of them. And she just always wanted her to be more, 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 more. And then by the time she was 20 years old, Phil found her. I think it was Estelle, one of the cousins reached out to Phil personally Got a hold of the secretary and really just said, "We are three sisters that have been gigging a lot in Manhattan. Will you please just listen to us? Just see." And he said yes. And they came in and they performed. And it was one of those things where I don't remember what the first song she sang to them. Probably like a one of those old rock and roll standards, "Recipe for Love" sort of thing, or like "Good Girls." And 10 seconds in and Phil Spector's jumping around the room, jumping on the piano stool, screaming like, that's it, that is it. That is the voice that I've needed for the wall of sound. That is what I've been looking for my entire career that goes along with the story that the first time she went into the studio to record, this is big time. This is when you have Phil Spector and you have the wrecking crew and you have people like Carol Kay and Benny Goodman and these people are telling stories about Ronnie and and, uh, the first time that they ever went into practice, Be My Baby, and you know, that boom, boom, boom. And then she starts singing and the thing like stops. People just were jaw dropped with their instruments lowered. Like people had not heard that voice. And from there, it was, she had a beautiful voice. She was completely charismatic on stage. It was a beautiful thing. It was a lot. I see a lot of Ronnie Spector and Amy Winehouse. We did an Amy Winehouse dissection last year, Rachel and I. And I think there's a lot of the same style and a lot of the same insecurities that fostered a bunch of unfortunate habits but she was outstanding their performances were incredible rave reviews all of this she was the original bad girl of rock and roll you know high hair eyeliner all of that The kind of speaking to the amy winehouse thing all that stuff she was incredibly popular she attributes a lot of her sound to frankie lyman frankie lyman she was completely in love with him when he was you know just young when she was still learning how to sing and all that stuff. And he she actually met him a couple times. But unfortunately, even at his young age, her stories of him are he was very, very, very much a drunk. He was very drunk both times that she met him and he was, you know, acting like a famous dude and she was v- extremely young. Ronnie Spector was also, was always a very, very innocent young girl until the 70s. She's fairly not rigid upbringing, but close family. The first time that she ever had sex was with Phil Spector, the, who she married. She wasn't a rock and roller. She just loved the spotlight. So, this whole like original bad girl of rock and roll, it's kind of funny to hear that because she really wasn't. But yeah, the, it's unfortunate, never meet your heroes I think it really disturbed her That she was so in love with Frankly Lyman And she had been gigging a bit at the time And there was this like, he was supposed to come to her What, like, 15th or 16th birthday party And he showed up, like, four hours late Just drunk off his ass And, you know, being a little aggressive with her And then the only other time She had already come out with Be My Baby And she was huge And kind of the same thing happened That's kind of a bummer Uh, And I think that started in the whole getting her to realize what the industry was. Ronnie has been very vocal in her second act, or what do you call it, third act. So you can break up her life as she's just a little kid trying to make it, wants to be a star. She becomes a star when she meets Phil Spector. She marries Phil Spector. She goes through that hell. And then she gets away from Phil Spector. So I guess third act. Her third act, she was very, very vocal about Her sadness about Amy's situation, about what happened with Amy Winehouse and how easy it is to get into that kind of thing. Uh, Her happiness about what Taylor Swift has been able to do and how she has been able to become her own conglomerate. And you know, same with Beyonce and how it's so nice to see a female able to do that, which brings me to one of the points that I think her life brought to the forefront, which is that. In the 50s and the 60s and most of the 70s and the 40s and the 30s and the 20s uh it just sucked to be a woman it just did that if you were a woman especially in the music industry you were fucked you were at the mercy of specific people one of the first people that she became close with close relationship with that was also famous was Cher and this was back in the days where Cher and Sonny Bono were pretty new and that a lot of the same things there I don't people talk about Sonny and Cher and babe I got you babe and all this shit and I think they forget that Sonny Bono was a piece of shit Sonny Bono was abusive and mentally and did a lot of messed up shit with Cher there are other you know Ronnie and Phil Phil did a lot of the same shit to Ronnie uh, I can Tina Turner like there are a lot of stories like this that uh, the music industry harbored, and it sucks. What's also weird is if you read, uh, so Ronnie Spector's book, Be My Baby, which I kind of briefly touched on. I did read that, getting ready for this, it's a fantastic read, I did. So I started with the audiobook, read by Rosie Perez, which was fun, having that accent, She's Puerto Rican, right? Um, Yeah, she's Puerto Rican. She also grew up in Brooklyn. Like you can tell from her accent immediately. Brooklyn, Puerto Rico. It was fun to hear that style talking about Ronnie Spector because it is a memoir. So it is told in the words of Ronnie Spector. Unfortunately, it did start to drive me nuts. Rosie Perez is not the best at knowing when to make something sound funny or not. So she would be saying something that was pretty awful. Like, I can't even think of an example, but she'd be saying something that's pretty terrible, and she'd be saying it like this. <laughs> so I had to just buy the actual book and read it, because it was it was driving me insane. And I was literally, I literally, no pun intended, I was seriously worried that the way that she was reading it was going to skew how I viewed her story. And that's part of the interesting thing about Ronnie Spector's story from her own eyes, even when you hear her in interviews later in her life, is she has such a humor and such a happiness about her, but what she's talking about is terrible. And part of the book that's really disturbing is how much of a part she played in the allowance of Phil Spector's abuse. I know that is a very dangerous thing to say, and in no way is it Ronnie Spector's fault that she was being abused at all. It's more a take on, it is disturbing what females back then just knew that they just had to go with. They just had to, that's just part of life, man. Yeah, my husband gets to do that. Um, it's really, really shitty and depressing. And it's such a good look at that because she is talking about it. Like it's just a ho hum thing. Well, you know, my husband's just gonna, uh, if I go and get a hamburger with Sonny Bono because we're hungry and we're at the studio, I come back. Well, my husband's gonna fucking yell at me and, and call me a and that's just part of being married. Ha ha ha. It's really sad. It's also interesting in the book how, over the last couple years, I've read a lot about Ronnie and the heinous things that Phil had done and the captivity and the... Um, for those of you that don't know, one of the things that Phil Spector did as an obsessive person, particularly over Ronnie, is he built these massive barbed wire fences around their huge mansion that he bought them. He would like hide her shoes from her put broken glass in certain areas so that she wouldn't go there. You know, you read outside stories about it from other people, and she's a prisoner. She's absolutely a prisoner. She's in captivity by this man. But you read it from her perspective. You read her memoir. You hear her talk. She doesn't see it like that at all. It's the craziest thing it really is. I don't know. I probably shouldn't be saying that it's crazy. It's probably not crazy. And there's probably a lot of psychoanalysis that makes complete sense that I don't understand because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. So there probably have been times while I'm talking about this where I sound very uneducated and very out of touch. And it's because I probably am you know when i say that that it's an interesting thing to see her almost not seeing it as captivity as just seeing it as something different i'm sure that there are a lot of explanations for that that you all out there know better than me i'm sure there is some form of stockholm syndrome and what abuse does to the mind that unfortunately we don't fully understand yet or the population and mass have not been educated on like myself So when I say things like that, I'm not trying to be insulting to Ronnie or implying that she was any form of cause of it. It's just interesting to hear somebody from that perspective from that long ago discuss an issue that they had an abuse that they were the victim of so casually and so flippantly. You can tell that she views it very differently than most of us do. And anything else, I guess, can just be chalked up to my ignorance or misunderstanding of what these situations bring. I don't know. Maybe somebody can write in and let me know, help me make sense of it a little more than I am. So anyway, going back to earlier stuff, Ronnie comes out with Be My Baby and it's this massive, massive hit. There's also, they had a lot of good songs. They had like Walking in the Rain, She Talks to Rainbows, Do I Love You, Baby I Love You. (laughs) It's the 60s. Baby, Baby, Be My Baby. They get massive and they are invited to tour with the Beatles and they go. And this is pre Phil Spector. Phil Spector knows her and loves recording with her, but they're not like an official thing yet. So they go on tour with the Beatles and the Beatles are just completely obsessed with the Ronettes. They are so in love because the Beatles are all about American rock. That's all they care about. And they see these beautiful, beautiful women doing stuff like Be My Baby john lennon immediately just completely falls in love with her george harrison falls in love with her too george harrison also kind of falls he kind of falls in love with all of them but they all hang out for the tour and there are a lot of it's so funny to hear a woman talk about john lennon john lennon wanted to be with her like john lennon wanted her and she was like no you're we're friends i really like having you as a friend and she said that he was, never, he was never rude about it. He was never forceful in any way. He was always a gentleman. But it's very, very funny to hear somebody talk about John Lennon like that. Like, oh, that's nice, John. Whatever. No, thank you. But that helped them out a lot touring with the Beatles. They also, towards the end of that tour is when Ronnie, uh, sorry, is when Phil kind of decided that he wanted Ronnie for his own. He made them come back from the tour. I'm guessing that he'd heard a little bit about how close the Beatles were getting with the Ronettes because the next tour that the Ronettes did was with the Rolling Stones. And Ronnie's talking about how it was really weird because she liked the Rolling Stones, but they wouldn't, they were timid. Like they wouldn't even look at them, they wouldn't say one word to them. Come to find out, that Phil Spector had told the Rolling Stones management that if you even so much as talk to the Ronettes, this tour's over, you're done. And Phil Spector is a massively prominent figure in the music industry right now. He has all the power. So they went with it. Now in the end, you know, they're rock stars. They're like, no, when Ronnie found that out, she was like, fuck that, like, you'd come talk to me. Like, we're gonna hang out. She actually ended up being really close with Keith Richards, in fact, I think, Keith Richards even did the forward for the novel, for the memoir. But that is about when it started to get bad with Phil and Ronnie. And the bottom line is, is that that was the peak of Ronnie's fame. And the reason that was the peak of Ronnie's fame was because of Phil. Phil pretty much decided with his own neurosis and his own psychosis and all of that, that a he wanted ronnie to himself and the way to keep her to himself was for her to not get more famous and that b this is when phil kind of started to lose his mind as far as production he started coming out with much less and less shit because he was so paranoid about his music being bad. So Ronnie goes back, they go back to the studio and they keep half recording stuff and they keep almost recording and Phil won't release any of it because he's not saying it's good and he's not letting them do any sort of tours. He also is just casually keeping her away from her family. And the other thing that he's starting to do is he's starting to have the other Ronettes go on tour without Ronnie. He is trying as much as he can to separate Ronnie from uh, Nedra and Estelle. Anytime they're in the studio and it's just and it just ends up being Ronnie doing all the parts. She's like, what the fuck? We're a group. And he's like, no, we're not a group. Like you can have any backup singers come and sing this, and vice versa. Sometimes Ronnie's out touring and the other girls, he's being very, very calculated in making sure that she's separated from the other Ronettes, her cousins. Eventually, the shine on the Ronettes starts to fade because they're not coming out. You know, this is back in the day where you had to come out with stuff every half a year. You had to be prevalent. You had to stay with it. And they weren't because Phil wouldn't release anything with them. He would keep telling her, yeah, we're getting in the studio. They would keep practicing stuff and they wouldn't really come out with it. And Ronnie was okay with it because Ronnie was completely in love with Phil. And at this time, it wasn't a full-on psychosis of him controlling her yet. She was legitimately, completely in love with him. And it wasn't a, you know, oh, he's my boss and he's got money. You listen to her talk, she loved the way he laughed. She loved his passion for the music. She loved the the look in his eye when this and that, like she is totally in love. When their first album cut and it became a number one hit when Be My Baby did, they were in her house and in her place in New York City and like the first time they made love she was the aggressor like this wasn't a he didn't groom her she was incredibly in love And then this thing happened where, you know, we're in the era of the Mad Men era, or whatever you want to call it, where he decides, yep, I'm in love too, and nobody else is going to have you. And he gradually starts to eat away at all her relationships. So at this point, she's not really touring anymore. She's with Phil. She loves Phil, so she's okay with everything going on. And you know what? I think this is a good time for a break. I'll talk a little bit about how all that ended and uh, the, the third chapter of her life. We'll be right back. And now the time has come. And so my love, I must go. And though I lose a friend, in the end you will know. Uh, 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 uh. One day you'll find. That I have gone But tomorrow may rain so I'll follow the sun We are back. Veronica, Yvette, Bennett, Ronnie Specter, Just a, a great little lady. So, Phil Specter, yeah, who, by rain, the way, here's something else, so was still married to somebody else when they met. Ronnie didn't know about this. Just a real, real, real good egg that Phil they do the whole falling in love thing. He buys them a huge mansion. They live in it. And this is when it becomes a, uh, I don't want you talking to other men. Um, this, the, the very few tours she was able to go on, He, you know, she had to call him any time that she was in a different location. He bought, he bought her a Corvette. <laughs> he bought her a Corvette, but he didn't want her to drive alone. He didn't want any guys to think she was alone. So he had an inflatable him made, an inflatable Phil Spector to put in the passenger side of the car. Not fucking kidding. Here's your brand new car. And she's like, holy shit. He's like, and here's inflatable Phil Spector for when I'm not there. So he's not letting her work. He's not letting her meet up with anybody. He's not letting her see any of her buddies. You know, randomly she'll see like Cher every now and then on the street or something like that. And they'll talk about their their shit so she starts to drink because what the fuck else are you gonna do right which he doesn't even allow her to do that by the way she has to sneak that and uh becomes a pretty hardcore alcoholic uh, they do eventually have a kid because you know all that typical stuff where she has no career anymore and every time she does come out with something it flops because she's not in the headlines she's not a known figure anymore because Phil kept her from being one. So every time that he was like, fine, we'll do something and they do something, it would flop, which would piss him off more. It was very, very unfair, especially when you have these other huge figures in rock. You have these, you know, like the Beatles wanted the Ronettes to tour them again on their last tours in like 69. And groups like the Rolling Stones always wanted to work with him and he wouldn't let him. So then, you know, she's like, well, can I at least have a kid? Can I do something with my life? And they have a kid and kind of the same thing starts to happen there. And he buys a nanny and he gets mad at her if she, you know, changes a diaper. Just super, super fun stuff until finally, until finally, there's no exactly what or when. But what it sounds like is he finally started to, he was a raging alcoholic, but. Uh, he started to have a coke problem, from what it seems like. These like extreme, hyperactive mood swings, and Ronnie's mom had come to live with them occasionally to, to see the kid and, and watch the kid and stuff. And she was there for a particularly very, very bad outburst by Phil. To when she finally was like, "I'm, I got to get you the fuck out of here." So they leave, and she files for a divorce, which is this big, ugly divorce until Phil kind of proves himself for what he is in court by... Phil thought he was invincible. He would walk into the court and just start screaming at people and shit. And finally the judge was like, all right, okay, this is ridiculous. So she's able to get her divorce and she's able to move on. From that point forward, she got to do things like she got to be part of oldies tours which is to her insulting but she's still super positive about it when she talks about it just like yeah i hate the like vegas hey the ronettes remember us kind of tour and residencies and but she's like fuck it i get to play for people that's amazing problem was that she was still a raging alcoholic The bottle had got her big time at this point. They had a gig at the Flamingo that they ended up having to give up because she would just get wasted and couldn't play. There's also talk here and there about her before she'd go on stage, she'd get death threats from Phil and just a bunch of stuff that kept her from really being able to ever have a real career. So her career at that point became this kind of legendary status. It wasn't a career. It was just people like Keith Richards or Eddie Money, who, if you've never heard the... It's 80s, right? What, like 89? What's What year is Take Me Home Tonight? 86. Wow. Was that long? Ago? No. Released in 86? I was four when Take Me Home Tonight came out. I liked that song. I can't believe I was that young. Yeah, she got to sing her Be My Little Baby on that, which is super fun. All of these people these rock stars just fucking loved Ronnie Spector. Joey Ramone, that was one person that I haven't even talked about yet. Joey Ramone fucking loved Ronnie Spector. So much so that he got together with her in 1999 and produced an album of hers called She Talks to Rainbows, which is great. It's got versions of She Talks to Rainbows by Joey Ramone, it's got Bye Bye Baby, uh what's the other oh Don't Worry Baby by Brian Wilson. Like it's only I think it's only 5 or 6 tracks but It's great, and it's Joey Ramone. All these people, John Lennon, Keith Richards, Joey Ramone, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, she had fans that were kind of a big deal. And it's interesting because her career was so short that you could call it practically non-existent. Her entire career was a fucking, like a year. And the rest of it was just trying to kind of get out of Phil's shadow. So a lot of her career is based around a lot of other people saying how incredible she was. And it's also one of those tragedies of maybe people like me who love music that don't really realize how great she was until she passes away and then you really start to concentrate on Oh, shit. When I first did the Fabulous Ronettes album, I was meh. Not because I don't like doo but all the songs kind of start to sound the same and this sort of thing. But then you hear the story behind it and you go to study it and you realize, oh, shit yeah, this is really incredible music and her voice is amazing. But what really sucks is that we never got a chance to see what she could do. And we never got a chance to see what she could do because the music industry is and always has been fucking terrible. I don't even know why we're doing a podcast, a music podcast. Music is evil. And that is what I think about this whole thing. No, I don't really think that. I just think that it really shines a light on what some of these artists really could have done if they were given the usage of their full ability. I think it's amazing that Ronnie Spector didn't let her life be defined by Phil. I've talked about how it bugs me that she really views the Ronnie Phil thing as a relationship, she views it as a young girl and an unhealthy man that were really, really in love didn't know how to handle that. And it's very frustrating from the outside because you want to just grab her and say, no, Ronnie, actually he was a terrible abuser. He was doing atrocious things to you. But I think that speaks to what a positive person she was. And I think that the reason that she got out alive and she got out happy was because she was a happy person. She wanted the spotlight. She got the spotlight. She didn't get it for as long as she wanted. She had the same struggles that a lot of us have. And I think it makes her extremely likable. I don't know if you, if you ever got the chance to sit down and have a real honest conversation with Ronnie, if she would tell you that she was really proud of her third act or she was sad. She did get to do cool things. People still loved her. She hung out with David Bowie. George Harrison recorded some stuff with her. George Harrison loved her. Uh, his whole life. Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix loved working with her, loved her. I don't know if that was enough for her. It's really hard to tell when hearing her talk because she is, she's just so, she's always on. She's always performing. She doesn't want to live in those times of yeah, you know, I'm not really making it right now. She's still going to want to talk about that one day in the studio where she made everybody's jaws drop or USO show where the guys are going insane watching the Ronettes. I don't know if she's proud of her third act, but I hope she is. At that time with somebody as powerful as Phil who ended up going to prison and dying in prison for shooting a woman that uh shunned his advances. That was a thing that happened to him over and over in his later years until finally he just shot somebody and went to prison. She got out of that situation, maintained a career, not a great one, but she did maintain a career. She stayed close with her family. Alcohol was a real problem, but she did do the whole AA thing, kind of in and out. She died sober, she died of cancer. I think that somebody that goes through like that, look, Ronnie was so young and so innocent and vulnerable when she got into the industry that she just never stood a chance. Instead of viewing all of the things that happened to her from the age 19 to 26 or 30 or 40 or whatever you want to say, she should be the most jaded, fucked up individual there is. And she's not. And I love that. I look up to her for that. What a weird career, you know, what a top of the world, greatest thing that people have heard for that to be so prominent in a day and age where you have people like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones obsessing over you and it just never really coming to fruition for anything of longevity because of the other people that were keeping her from that. But then to get the random songs with George in the 70s and then Eddie Money in the eighties, always staying prevalent enough for the prominent people to talk about how much they love you. It's just a incredibly odd career brought on by the fame monster, the drive and the need for certain people to be famous. And I think there's a huge difference between that and performing. I, I mean, I loved performing when I did it. It's not a rush of people knowing that people are looking at you I think there are two different people that perform. I think there are people that love the spotlight, that love that people are watching them and saying, look at that person go, that person is amazing. And then I think there are people that get a huge rush by hearing or seeing that other people like their art. A, a painter that sits from afar and watches at a gallery while people go up to their paintings and say how incredible it is. or. You know, I know a lot of musicians, um, artists like like Lane Staley, who was really happy when he got to wear sunglasses, the uh, same as like Leroy Moore from Dave Matthews Band, because they have extenuating stage fright. They don't want the people there. <laughs> they want the people there. They want the perfect scenario that we've talked about once on the podcast. They want the perfect scenario of a band like the Gorillas. That to me is perfect. You are a famous group, So you're able to make your living by performing your art for people that enjoy it and love it. So you get that rush of seeing and hearing people love your music, but they don't have to see your faces. That would be just the most perfect, perfect thing. But somebody like a Ronnie Spector is going to get eaten up by that somebody like a Ronnie Spector who I'm not saying would do anything for fame because she wasn't like that at all. She she had very strict morals and she had very specific things that she was asked to do for her music that she refused to do because she didn't believe in it. She was a very strong-willed person, just in a very different way, in a very different era. Unfortunately, it was an era where women, most women, had zero power. But her need for that spotlight kept her at the beck and call of people that would take advantage of the fact that she would do anything that people would say in hopes that she could get back in the studio, in hopes that she could get back on stage, because that was her real connection. Her on stage performing for somebody was really where she felt the most like herself. And unfortunately, out of the 50 years, 55 years that she was a performer, maybe 20 of those, she actually got to do what she loved. Like I've said many times, in the end, she's still such a positive person. Go listen to her interviews. I really, that book is a great book. Go read that book. It's incredible. It's a really, really great memoir. Lots of really funny stories about being on the road with the Beatles and crazy parties where when she started doing the whole drug thing in the 70s at Bowie's house and, you know, just crazy shit like that. It was really nice to study for this because it was all about showing an actual human story hearing it from her perspective was really hard because you do hear a lot of victim mentality and a lot of when somebody talks they they're just in love it's not abuse it's not uh, something like that it's just her being in love and even you know reading her book it's nice to have a full realist's picture into ronnie's life it's nice for it to not be completely encapsulated by her relationship with Phil Spector. You know, Ronnie Bennett wanted to be Ronnie Spector because Phil Spector was the name. And she knew that if her last name was Spector, she had a better chance of being famous. So it was her choice. And that's kind of who she was. She just wanted to perform. Uh, In 2017, Ronnie did get to be present for when the Ronettes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, obviously well-deserved. Uh, Keith Richards introduced her. Keith Richards, I didn't even realize this, Keith Richards lives in Connecticut. I guess I should say has a house in Connecticut. I didn't know that. He and Ronnie lived very close to each other. They run into each other at the store and shit like that so they were very close for a long time and if you go back and you watch that 2017 hall of fame induction it's fun her and uh, the ronettes sing be my baby and the other two ronettes who really don't get any recognition which is unfortunate but i mean they just weren't they didn't have the presence that ronnie had but they were still great very eloquent, really, really lovely speeches. It's really nice to see when a group that deserves recognition is recognized by a hall like that. It's great. And I guess the last thing that I'll put in here before I say my goodbyes for this episode is where does that leave us on our thoughts with the industry, specifically how they've dealt with people like Ronnie Spector, which is to just ignore it and shove it out of the way. One of the unfortunate things that I don't like about this is Ronnie had a lot of powerful friends. She was, you know, the Beatles, like I said, John Lennon loved her, George Harrison loved her, Keith Richards loved her, Cher, who ended up eventually getting out of the grasp of Sonny. I understand that the only person in control of someone's life is that person. I very, very much, I very strongly and passionately believe that. But it's sad when you're hearing the interviews and you're reading the book and everything about, you know, like John Lennon was there the first day of their divorce proceedings. It was a court. People could go in and it was actual court proceedings and Lennon was there and The first thing that Phil did was flip out and start calling Ronnie a bitch and how could you, you're trying to take all my fucking money and this and Lennon just kind of shakes his head and leaves the room. They had to know that things like this were going on, but you know, Let It Be, Let It Be was recorded in 1970. Uh, or sorry, no, it was it was released in 70. I think it was recorded from 68 to 69. But you know who the producer of that was? Phil fucking Specter. Because the Beatles wanted to go back to that old school feel. They wanted that wall of sound. They wanted, which, you know, by the way, here's something else. Because I do feel like we do need to just keep shitting on Phil Spector. Phil Spector was an amazing producer. What he thought of wasn't some amazing thing. If you really study the wall of sound and really get a feel for what it actually is, the only thing he did differently than what other producers were doing was instead of having like one guitar on a song, he'd bring in four guitars and play the four guitars. And then he would double that. And then he would double track that. And then he would double track that. He did the same thing with vocals. That's all he did. That's the wall of sound. It wasn't some groundbreaking, technological, oh man, how do I do this, how do I do this, what do I do here, and it was literally fucking, let's get a shit ton of instruments to play a song, and then let's double those on the tracks, and then let's double those until we have 30 of everything, and it just is this huge wall of sound hitting your ears. That's all he did. So, you know, maybe a little bit, you're not a big deal. Even like when he went in to record Let It Be, there are stories about that um that this is just bringing back into my head that he didn't even know what to do he was so out of date at that time because he had been hiding in his mansion with ronnie for years and years technology had become more advanced than him so he looked at let it be as this oh yeah well let's just do it traditionally but he wasn't doing that he didn't know how the fuck to not do it traditionally he hadn't learned any further things and you know here's another thing about ronnie's And, you know, here's another thing about Phil that maybe we should rethink how brilliant he is, which that's me that needs to rethink. I am the one that has been saying it on the pod a bunch about how brilliant of a producer he was. But another thing that I found a couple people saying, uh, including Ronnie, which grain of salt, very justified bitterness, it could have been coming from. But I think it sounds pretty right is. As she said, and another one or two people that I was reading interviews about, is a lot of people forget who Phil Spector was working with. Phil Spector did have the Wrecking Crew. He did a lot of writing with Benny Goodman. His writing partner was Jack... Nietzsche. Jack Nietzsche was brilliant. Jack Nietzsche was the one that put these songs together. Jack Nietzsche was the organizer. We talked about him on an episode where we talked about Evil and I did One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, which Jack Nietzsche composed. And man, especially Ronnie said that the genius in the room never felt like Phil. Phil was the neurotic director, you know? Phil was the one that that had the artsy vision. Jack was the composer. Jack was the writer. Jack was the real brilliance in the room. Yeah, I'm sure he was, I don't know. I'm sure he was probably brilliant. I just don't, kind of at the point where I just don't want to admit it anymore. I just want to think of him as a dunce that had the power to have a bunch of really talented people around him. He was a pathetic dude that created something that was awesome, but it wasn't, he wasn't some fucking genius. He was just a neurotic asshole that was privileged enough to be put in a position because he was a white, you know, he was this son of immigrants from this fucked up family whose dad, you know, his dad killed himself when he was, I don't know how old, what, what was it when he was like 10 years old, then just proceeded to let his neurosis take over and Got to kind of do what he wanted, thanks to his early career with people like the Teddy Bears and producing the Specters and uh, the Ronettes. He wasn't some fucking great man. He was just another guy. And Ronnie wasn't. Ronnie was special. What I love and what I will say to cap this off is... One of my favorite things that you hear ronnie specter talk about towards the end of her career and her her last few years is she was a big karma person even though she talks a lot about the years in the mansion with phil that it, you know it took her a while to even realize that it was abuse she didn't even see it as abuse she just saw it as a marriage eventually when she realized it was abuse and then she was she went her own way. She got remarried. She got remarried to another producer. She really wanted that. There was a part of her that did want that in normal life. She wanted marriage and kids and stuff, but also the fame. Anyway, she was big on the fact that she was She was very happy that Phil Spector ended up in prison. She was really happy that he died in there. She was very much, yeah, so he, he kept me in prison for a long time and now he's there and this was Before he died, because he died fairly recently. He didn't die until 2021, just a year before Ronnie did. And she's real cool about it. She's real, yeah, well, kept me locked up. Now he's locked up. And that was just her she was so even keeled about stuff in her later years when you talk to her she was so level-headed and she never spoke like a victim she always spoke like somebody that knew what positions she put herself in and what positions she had no control over putting herself in she knew that what happened to her was deeply wrong and she had somehow come to terms with it at least from the outside her off and on alcoholism her life shows differently, but man, she was was a cool, cool fucking person. Uh, Ronnie Spector. I am really, really glad that I did this. This has been a... I went from really not knowing much about Ronnie Spector beyond the bad girl of rock and roll thing from the 50s and 60s. I went from that to thinking that she was this over-the-moon, unbelievably famous, invincible, badass that everybody was a huge fan of, that she was untouchable, that these horrible things happened to, that she eventually broke free from. And my mind has changed a lot on her. I see her a lot more now as just... (sighs) Ronnie Spector was an incredibly confident, determined, timid, innocent, scared little girl from Spanish Harlem who had a gift, who loved being able to use that gift, who was abused because of that gift, but who never let that abuse become who she was. She's not some, it's one of the things that I'm talking a lot about doing these things. You know, I did Mark Lanigan and I have a lot of similar thoughts about Mark Lanigan now that I know so much about him. She's not some standing above the world legend. She was just a girl that wanted to be famous that had a lot of talent that was beautiful and made some cool music. Vonica Yvette Bennett, born uh, 1943, died in uh, January, 2022. She was 78. Go listen to her. Go, go watch. Just go watch the Ronettes on YouTube. You'll have a blast. You'll have a shit ton of fun. And I think that's it. FirstCourseFirst.com at verse verse pod. Thanks for joining me to talk about Ronnie and the specters and the good and the bad. And, uh, I don't know, man, I'm spent, uh, join us next week, Rachel and I doing a here's where you're wrong on one of everybody's favorite current people. It took me a while to decide if we really actually wanted to do this I think it's exciting. I'm gonna try a few new things in this episode and uh, see how it goes. We're gonna ask a lot of questions about you know, publicity stunts, mental illness, society's hand in helping famous people be famous. Uh, you probably know who I'm talking about. Rachel and I are gonna argue about it, maybe. Maybe we'll agree on a few things nobody ever knows. That'll be next. You are all just lovely, lovely people. Go listen to Ronnie. Good night. Good luck.